Kia ora. This program is brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Good morning, shalom, and welcome to this morning's Wellington Jewish Community and Jewish Culture Program, brought to you by David Swartz on Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM. Unfortunately, Desiree Gazentsve can't be with us this morning. And today we'll be talking about Deb Filler, who is going to be doing a show in Wellington. And we also have an interview with Vivian Ulrich, who is a poet, has just published a book of poems and a couple of other items as well. So let's begin with Deb Filler, who many people in Wellington in the Jewish community will remember as the daughter of Sol and Ruth Filler, Holocaust survivors. And Deb came to everybody's attention quite a few years ago now with her first one-person show uh, called um, called, um, Punch Me in the Stomach. And this one, she had very widespread success overseas and and, uh, lives now in North America. And this show is called I Did It My Way. And I'll give you the ticket information and uh, time and place straight away. It's on Sunday the 19th of February, so that's a fortnight from today. It's at the Jewish Community Centre in the Myers Hall and it is at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, 5 to 6.40pm. And I'll read to you what the blurb says the promoter. This charming, poignant, multimedia, worldwide hit comes to Wellington after delighting audiences London, in London, Toronto, New York, Vancouver, Washington, D.C., Sydney, Jerusalem, and Auckland, etc. Internationally acclaimed Kiwi Jewish actor, comic musician, and writer Deb Filler, a brilliant storyteller, will delight audiences with these, in brackets, mostly true stories of how deeply music affects our lives. As she drives a car service in New York City, she takes us on a truly incredible ride with Leonard Cohen, reducing the venerable Canadian folk singer to tears of laughter. The story of meeting Leonard Bernstein in the Auckland Town Hall as a teen, bringing him hot challah bread from her father, a survivor of the Holocaust, who heard Bernstein play Rhapsody in Blue in DP camp after the war, is nothing short of extraordinary. And what happens next is unbelievable. So with only a guitar and a raft of lovable characters, Deb's one woman is a tour de force, one woman shows a tour de force in this jam-packed, music and humour-filled show. So you should book because uh, limited seats and you can book through Humanitex or you can go to the website of the WJCC and this information is in their latest newsletter. Not to be missed because she's a wonderful performer. You might remember the show where she actually baked Khala uh, on the stage and, and uh, spoke and performed at the same time. So really special. Well, other things that are coming up, and this is actually tomorrow, is Tuba Shabbat. And that, you'll recall, is the festival which is actually named by its date. Two is the number 15, and it falls in the Hebrew month of Shabbat. 
it's not a festival when you're required to fast or go to the synagogue. It's, I suppose it's called a minor festival. Originally, it was not observed as a Jewish festival. It marked an important date for Jewish farmers in ancient times. Because the Torah states that you're forbidden to eat the fruit of a tree until it's three years old, this raised the question of how farmers were to mark the so-called birthday of a tree. The rabbis, so therefore, they established the 15th of the month of Shavat as a general birthday for all trees, regardless of when during the year they were actually planted. In the land of Israel, most of the annual rainfall has already fallen by the month of Shavat, so it's a good time to plant trees. And incidentally, many New Zealanders are familiar with this concept because it also applies to thoroughbred racehorses. They all share the birthday. I think it's in August, 1st of August. In medieval times, the 12th and 13th centuries, the Jewish mystics known as Kabbalists gave to B'Shavat greater spiritual and religious significance. They sort of built on it. On to B'Shavat, the Kabbalists would eat certain fruits associated symbolically with the land of Israel, particularly the fruits that came from trees, nuts as well, and dried fruits. And in modern times, Tubushvat has become a symbol of both Zionist attachment to the land of Israel, as well as an example of Jewish sensitivity to the environment. Early Zionist settlers to Israel began planting new trees, not only to restore the ecology of ancient Israel, but as a symbol of renewed growth of the Jewish people returning to their ancestral homeland. In the Southern Hemisphere, though, February is not a good time for tree planting, so Jewish communities sometimes do weeding around young trees instead. For environmentalists, Tubushvat is an ancient and authentic Jewish Earth Day that educates Jews about the Jewish tradition's advocacy of responsible stewardship of the world we live in, as expressed in ecological activism. Contemporary versions of the Tubushavat Seder, emphasizing environmentalist concerns, are gaining popularity. And in fact, there are Seders this afternoon here in Wellington uh, to celebrate Tubushavat. Trees, and particularly fruit trees, had special status in the Torah because of their importance in sustaining life and as a symbol of divine favor. Even during times of war, the Israelites were warned in the Torah, when in your war against a city you have to besiege it a long time in order to capture it, you must not destroy its trees. Are trees of the field human to withdraw before you into the besieged city? Only trees that you know do not yield food may be destroyed. And in Roman times, a famous rabbi said, if you have a sapling in your hand, and someone comes to tell you that the Messiah has arrived, you must finish planting the sapling before going to greet the Messiah. So that's Tuba Shavat, celebrated today in Wellington and New Zealand, and following that around the world. So now let's turn to literary things, and an interesting little snippet that two new novels last year deal controversially with traumatic Jewish history, but both were re- written by European non-Jews. 
the Polish Nobel laureate Olga Tokarczuk delivered the English translation of her book, The Books of Jacob, a 1,000-page doorstopper steeped in the tale of false messiah Jacob Frank, who lived in Eastern Europe in the 1700s. And I've just bought it. It is a 1,000-page doorstopper, so I'm putting it aside until I've got a week or so to read it. And the other one is the Irish author John Boyne, who has delivered another book, All the Broken Places. It's a, a child or young adult book, um, which is a rather controversial follow-up to his earlier book, also a children's book, called um, Boy in the Striped Pyjamas. Actually, he, he has defended that book against charges that it was implausible and tone-deaf, being a huge success and actually being made into a film as well. But sticking with literature, the next item is going to be an interview with a local poet, Vivian Ulrich, who has just published a book of poems called We Came From Hamburg. We're fortunate this morning to be able to speak with Vivian Ulrich. Her book of poems, We Came From Hamburg, has been published by the Cuba Press here in Wellington and it was launched last December. It's a poetic response to the Holocaust-era story of the Simon family who came from Hamburg to New Zealand as refugees in the early 1940s via England. Good morning, Vivian. Uh, to start with, can you give us a synopsis of the story? Sure, David. Well, I'll, I'll try. It's quite complicated. The story begins with a in Germany with a Jewish family, Hans Simon and his sister Erna. Erna had three daughters born between 1911 and 1914. The details are a mystery, but she left her husband and her three children in about 1920. Her own family cast her out. She was never to be spoken of again, dead be her name. And the Simon family had no contact with Erna's children from then on. Hans, her brother, went on to marry Vali, and they had two children. Hans died of peritonitis in 1936, and Vali was left a widow as a young woman. She was only about 33. She and her children, Eric and Liesel, escaped separately from Germany in 1938 to 1939. In 1940, Vali got a visa to come to New Zealand to marry Walter Baer, who'd also escaped from Germany. The family in New Zealand believed they were the only survivors of the Simon family. No one knew about Erna. And then we come right on to 2003, when through the internet, a great-granddaughter of Erna got in touch with the family in New Zealand. Erna's last surviving Zemon daughter had died, but her grandchildren were alive and well and living in the US with one in the Netherlands. They were having a stone setting for Ingeborg in New York with all the family attending. So I went with my husband to New York and we met that family. 
so that's basically the outline of the story. It is an extraordinary story, although the Holocaust has given us many similar accounts of, of reunions after the after yes. after people had thought that they were the only survivors and and through strange coincidences met up again. Yeah. Um, it's, I, it's very interesting how common these themes are. A lot of the, what's been written and and what and what yes and and the length of time before these uh, reunions have have occurred. Uh, one thing I'd like to ask you, in your book, there are 36 poems and they cover about 80 years. You mentioned 1920 up, up to the time of the reunion itself in the United States. And mm. how, how did the project actually come into your mind to write poems about this set of extraordinary circumstances? Um, well... I was doing the creative writing course at Victoria University. The theme for my folio was death and remembrance. Um, I guess the, I wasn't planning to write this story at all, but you know, you're trying to find things to write about when you're doing something like that under quite a lot of pressure. It began with a poem about Liesel on the kinder transport. And it evolved from there into a series of poems that were the precursor of of the book, and I developed it more after the course finished. And the difficult part was telling the story at the same time as crafting poems that could stand on their own two feet as poems. Yes. Mm -hmm. did, did it sort of grow with you as you went through the course? And, and so you the course gave you the skills and then the poem sort of grew one by one as you completed the the filling in of the actual story. Well, once I, once I decided to try and write the story, then I started to think about the individual people involved. I tried to imagine what it felt like to be in these situations, how the people responded to the circumstances they found themselves in, Mostly I've written about the women, Erna and Vali and Liesel, as the three main generations, as it were, from their points of view. I mean, there are, there are other poems about the context. And I've tried to give a sense of what it means to be descended from these families that were obliterated. The... the I mentioned 80 years, and that's three generations. Mm. It, it seems to me extraordinary that the influence, the, the, the horrific influence of the Holocaust could stretch so far across succeeding generations. I, 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 I sort of declare an interest because I'm a second-generation so-called survivor of the mm. Holocaust, but... Uh, I was born in New Zealand. I was not directly affected. And yet, uh, as a second-generation survivor, I, I'm, I'm aware of these things. Do you have that feeling that through your poems that you're expressing the, the uh, feeling of, of survival and guilt over generations? Yeah, well, I think so. See, my, I mean, 
I, I'm not Jewish, and, I, and this is not my inheritance, but I'm married to Philip, who is a second generation. His, his mother is Liesel, and his grandmother is Vali. So, I mean, since I've been with Philip, I've, I'd heard the story of the escape from Germany and coming to New Zealand as refugees. And that, you know, that's part of Philip's life experience, which, you know, I've been privileged to hear about and, and try and understand. But, of course, it wasn't until 2003 when we learned about Erna that we had this other little handle on this. I mean, what, what intrigued me about that is that, you know, the family said, dead be her name. She's not going to be spoken about. And yet it was saying her name in 2003 that brought these two disparate branches of the family together. And and it was a very meaningful contact um, because it, it meant that, you know, for the people in the family, I mean, you know, Hitler hadn't been successful to some extent. He'd, yes. He was this family that had survived in, in the United States and New Zealand, people who'd had children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, families that were thriving. Um, and, you know, yes. so it wasn't the final solution at all no. for those lucky people who did survive. Yes. Well, I must say that in the poems in the book, you express those whole set of ideas very sensitively and I would recommend to all listeners that they get a copy of the book of poems as we came from Hamburg and you can buy it in Wellington at Unity Books. So thank you very much, Vivian, for telling us about the book and the poems and your views on how they came to be written. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. I was speaking then with Vivian Ulrich, the author of the book of poems that she wrote. Now, we can't avoid talking about what's going on in the Ukraine because it's such a terrible and, and violent situation for all of the people of the Ukraine. But because this is a Jewish program, I'm going to concentrate on how it's affecting the Jews of, of Ukraine, which has been in the past a very vibrant community and a very large Jewish community too. But to start with, I want to express condolences to the family of Andrew Bagshaw from Christchurch, a brave New Zealand volunteer aid worker who was killed while trying to rescue an elderly woman from Soledar, an area of intense military action. And it's a very sad event for Andrew's parents. So we send our sympathy to them. Looking at what is happening to the Jewish community, I'll concentrate on, on reports from two major Jewish uh, sorry, two major Jewish relief organizations. The first one is World Jewish Relief, and the second one is the Joint, which is actually the sort of nickname for the Joint Distribution Committee. It, it was a charitable organisation, relief organisation, that was started in 1914 in connection with the First World War and has kept going ever since. Both of these organisations are channelling as much funding and support as they can towards the 
Ukraine Jewish community, and in particular, they're doing things like looking after the physical condition of Jews in what is a very, very severe winter climate. So they have to provide things like bedding, sleeping bags that can withstand sub-zero temperatures, rechargeable flashlights because there's not always electricity available, non-perishable foods, warm blankets and fleece-lined clothing, wood and coal because the, the heating is, is, is out, because the power is out. And when power is available, the cost of it is shot up, so they have to give funding for higher utility bills. Now, not all the Jewish community are actually still in accommodation or in their own homes because the level of destruction is, is very high. Uh, the Russians have actually targeted residential areas and their damage to apartment blocks and other housing is enormous. And so many Jews have had to become refugees. They have either moved to other parts of Ukraine where they can be looked after a bit more easily, although the whole country is, is suffering from the Russian invasion, quite deliberately from the point of, of attack of the Russians, who are not discriminating at all about trying to avoid the civilian community, or else the Jews are leaving the country and moving to Ukraine, to Bulgaria, Poland, Moldova, Germany, Hungary, Israel, Romania, Estonia, Latvia and Slovakia. All of those countries have set up organisations to welcome the refugees and look after them and, and the two aid organisations that I mentioned are, are helping those local organisations provide whatever support they can. And that includes food, medicine, accommodation, work opportunities and refugee integration into local Jewish institutions and programs. And along with European Union community partners, the volunteers uh, are present at key border crossings with other uh, neighbours, Ukrainian neighbours, of Ukrainian neighbours, the countries that I mentioned. And so the, the refugees are assisted when they arrive. Uh, both Jewish humanitarian aid organisations help non-Jewish organisations as well. There's a great deal of, of cooperation with all of the humanitarian aid to the suffering people of Ukraine. And so what they ask for really is as much aid in terms of cash because that's how you can best organise support and aid on the spot rather than sending anything. And and I'll say the names of those organisations again, the Joint, which you can find on Google through the initials JDA, and World Jewish Relief, which uh, is based in, in England, in London. In connection with the relief that's being given to the Jews of Ukraine, there is a prize 
which is given each year by the Genesis Prize Foundation. It's a prize of one million United States dollars, which is usually given to an individual and which it's expected that the recipients will donate to charity, a charity of their choice. But for this last year, the Genesis Prize Selection Committee, instead of awarding the prize to a single Jewish individual, has donated it to the whole group of aid suppliers, the Jewish activists in war-ravaged Ukraine, where obviously the need is now so great. The co-founder and board chair of the prize, Stan Polovets, told the Jewish Telegraphic Agency that he wants to stimulate Jewish giving by raising awareness of the particular needs of the Jews of the Ukraine. But he also said freedom is one of the most important values of the Jewish people, and this is a country that's fighting for its freedom. It has a president who has shocked everyone by his resilience and courage. We think that the Jewish community worldwide needs to be supportive to the extent it can. And just to round off, I'll let you know that we will go out, end this program with the traditional Tubishvat song, which is called Hashkediya, with the almond tree. And, and just to remind you about the show that Deb Filler is bringing to Wellington, which is really a, a don't miss because her work is so brilliant in, in so many ways. So um, I'll, with, those, with those final comments, I'll leave you this morning. You've been listening to Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM, Wellington's, Wellington's Access Radio Station, the first in New Zealand, started in 1981, still going strong. And I will wish you shalom and chag sameach for Tuba Shavat. And here is the song Hashkedia. <laughs> Brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Thanks New Zealand On Air for funding accessmedia.nz.